I could feel the trees just smacking against the bottom of the airplane and it was rapid. It was like a machine gun sound hitting the bottom of the airplane. And then all of a sudden they all went back into the cloud. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. 178 seconds to live. Just under three minutes. If you're a pilot, you've no doubt heard this statistic. Continued visual flight into instrument conditions claims a disproportionate number of GA pilots every year. It's easy to think, I'll never do that. And yet, it keeps happening. On this, the third episode of Flying BC, you'll meet James Marassa. James is an IFR air traffic controller in Vancouver, but he was once a flight instructor. He used up a lot of those seconds. He lived to tell the tale, and this is his story. James, thanks for joining me. Um, it's my pleasure, Warwick. Yeah. I wanted to bring you on because a couple of weeks ago, I was at Nav Canada's Flight Instructor Safety Stand Down, where you presented your incredible story. And I knew we had to get it out to more people because it's, uh, it's one for the ages. <laughs> um, I listened to you twice over the course of the day. And even the second time, like my stress levels were rising. And I was getting anxious just listening to you. And I'm pretty sure there's even a few tears of emotion and relief at the end of your presentations in the room. Um, it's kind of like that scared straight TV program. Like the story will scare a lot of people into better decisions. Right. Um, so I don't I don't want to do too much of a preamble on this one. I'm just going to let you run with the story because it's uh, yeah it stands on its own. Well, thank you, Warwick. Um, yeah, it's it raises some emotion in me every time I tell it. So uh, I've never actually sat and listened to it myself, obviously. But um, to tell it really puts me back in the airplane every single time. So, yeah, I get the same feeling in my throat. The heart rate tends to, to elevate. Uh, but, you know, it's not, to, it's not meant to scare people. Uh, it might have that effect. But, you know, when I started writing about this and started speaking to flight schools, the intent was... Um, well, because I didn't really want to talk about it, let's be honest. But the intent was to to educate and maybe give people an idea of, you know, how fast things can spiral out of control and uh, give them some guidance, uh, something to to touch back on if uh, if they ever find themselves having to make a decision. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, we would have to go back to two thousand and one. Um, actually, sorry, 2003. I'm getting uh, I'm getting my dates crossed because of all the references to 9/11 these days <laughs> and what's happening with the aviation industry. But it was 2003, January. I was a flight instructor at Boundary Bay, and I was uh, working with a student on her commercial license. And now it was a uh, it was a pretty bleak winter. There was some pretty terrible weather that year. And we were having trouble finishing her license. So uh, we were scheduled to do some upper air work and we'd been trying for weeks to get that in. 
And uh, on this particular day, the ceiling was about 1,500 feet, and there was a strong easterly wind. I remember it was a, a bit of a dynamic weather day, so it wasn't just the low, benign, drizzly overcast we often get. There was quite a bit of wind, and it was quite showery as well. But we decided to fly, so we got in the airplane, and we uh, leveled off, I think, about 1,200 feet, heading east over Blackie Spit. And it was clear at the time we weren't going to be able to get any altitude to do the upper air work. So I had the student put uh, the hood on. And at the time, VOR and ADF was still being widely used. So we did some VOR tracking off the Pitt Meadows VOR uh, while she was under the hood. And as we uh, headed towards Pitt Meadows, it, uh, the weather started to look a little better. I mean, it had been, uh, it had been solid overcast for a long time. And after, you know, people in Vancouver can relate, after seeing months or weeks of overcast, when you see that first bit of blue sky, it's really enticing. So that's what we saw, just a bit of blue sky opening up over uh, overhead pit meadows. And I thought, you know, well, let's, uh, let's head on over there. Now, I wasn't an air traffic controller at the time, but I thought I would practice some vectoring. So I gave her headings to fly. We uh, moved overhead the airport. And it started to look like we might be able to climb, might be able to get some altitude. So I had her climb to 3,000 feet and things were looking okay. So uh, once we got up to altitude, which 3,000 feet is pretty standard for, uh, for upper air work in the Fraser Valley, I had her clear the hood and uh, look around. And uh, she was happy to see some sunshine as well. And uh, started the, uh, the, the checks, I believe it was a halt check we did at the time uh, before doing upper air work. Now, uh, as she started to go through the, the checks, the height, uh, the aircraft, the location, I started to notice that the weather wasn't quite as nice as it had been when we climbed up through the hole. Well, I said before, things, uh, it was a dynamic weather day, and I can't really say it was factoring into my decision-making all that much at this point. Uh, I just saw an opening and thought we might be able to get some work done. But once we were up there, I could see things were starting to change. At that point, I thought I better take control. And one thing I like to say when I talk to flight schools, when it comes to decision making is, you, you know, one thing you have to have situational awareness, you have to be aware of what's going on around you. But you also have to reevaluate the decision as you go. That's one of the tenets of, uh, uh, or one of the cornerstones rather of air traffic control is being able to look at the situation, make a plan, and when the plan's not working, adjust on the fly. It's not easy to do, but it's a necessary skill. And I have to say at that point, I saw that this wasn't working and decided to make an adjustment. So I took control of the airplane and uh, started the descent back down to where we'd uh, climbed. But the gap in the clouds, which we'd climbed through was a heck of a lot smaller now than when we climbed through it. And I wasn't able to make it back down. So I actually had to put the aircraft back in a climb and level off again. I started to look around at this point and I really couldn't see any outs in my visual range. There was now a solid overcast layer below me and a solid overcast layer above me. And it just felt literally we were sandwiched between two layers somewhere over pit meadows. I'm gonna guess about 3,500 feet. So at that point, I realized I'd been caught. I'm uh, 
And if, if we look at it now, if we armchair quarterback it, it's pretty obvious what should have happened next. Uh, if I could go back in time, it's very clear that that was the time to call air traffic control and ask for assistance. But I didn't do that or we'd be done talking <laughs> at this stage. <laughs> that would have been, been a very benign story. But I think it's important to talk about why I didn't, because it's easy to look at a situation and say, hey, why did they do that? You know, obviously they should have turned around. Obviously they shouldn't have gone, or obviously they should have called air traffic control. At the time I had about 400 hours. I was about 20 years old and uh, I was in charge of the airplane. I was the pilot in command and this student had hired me to do a job and I really wanted to, to look like I knew what I was doing. I did not want to admit I made a mistake. I think she knew by this point, but I didn't want to have to explain myself after the fact either, because I thought as soon as I key the mic and talk to air traffic control, Transport Canada is going to get a fax. They're going to hear about this. My CFI is going to be waiting for me on the ground and I'm going to be in trouble or I've got to explain how I got into that situation. So I thought if there's any way I can fix this without having to call ATC, without having to get anyone else involved, I'm going to do that. So I said, let's turn this into a training opportunity. We were doing VOR tracking anyways. So I thought, let's uh, try and establish a fix off the Whatcom in the Pitt Meadows VOR to see if we can determine our position. Because it was, uh, wasn't easy to tell at that point since we were surrounded by cloud in all directions. And I thought I might have seen a little bit better weather out east towards Mission. So we, we headed out that way. In retrospect, I don't think there was but I really wanted to see something better than what I was looking at. So it's, it's amazing how the mind will play tricks on you and show you what you wanna see in those situations. The stress level wasn't too high yet though. Um, but as we got towards mission, I could see that there really wasn't much there in the way of us being able to descend. Uh, at that point, I, things started to, to speed up for me. And I think I think looking back at it now, having told the story many times, that's kind of a clue. When things start to speed up and you start feeling you have to make a decision really quickly, you might not be making the best decision. Um, so it's it's important to it's important to slow things down. But I wasn't uh, I wasn't there at the time. And for the people who don't fly around Vancouver, a little bit of lay of the land is probably important too. Like. Vancouver yeah. in the valley is flat, but there's mountains on every side, basically. That's correct. And, you know, out over the best course of action would have been head the complete opposite direction, which is west, because we have nothing but water out west of Vancouver. And then, as you say, Warwick, it's flat in the Fraser Valley. But to the north and to the east, the mountains rise quite quickly. So I was actually headed towards higher terrain. Nevertheless, when uh, when I got over towards Mission, I actually saw a hole in the clouds beneath me. And uh, looking, uh, I was in the in the right seat, so looking out over uh, over my shoulder, and just seeing a green farmer's field, I thought, "This is my out. That's it," because I know the ceiling's fifteen hundred feet, so we're about three thousand or so. If I can just descend that fifteen hundred feet or whatever it was. 
get below the deck, I know it's there's going to be a little bit of room and some flat land below me, and I can follow the Fraser River all the way home. So I thought, you know, this is it. If I don't act now, I might never get another chance. I slowed the airplane down. Uh, I think we were at about 80 knots in a 172. And I dropped 10 degrees of flap and started to set up for a steep descending turn. Uh, so as I did that, I started it to the left. And uh, we were descending through 3,000 feet, then through 2,500 feet. And I kept looking down directly ahead. I had pretty good visibility of the field. And then I would look up straight ahead. And I would look down. I could still see the field. And then I remember looking straight ahead and everything was completely gray. And I couldn't see anything anymore. I don't recall entering cloud. I don't recall if it closed in around me. I just know I looked up and, and everything was gone. The altimeter said uh, somewhere between 2,500 and 2,000 feet. And everything, as I said, was completely gray. And I was turning. I think it's important to pause here because what came into my head at that point was something I believe which saved my life. If we back up a, a year or two, I used to work the dispatch desk at the flight school where I had, was instructing and had, uh, had been flying that aircraft from. There was an older gentleman, a uh, British guy, who had started flying around World War II and he had a lot of experience. And I remember one day at the desk, it was just me and him. And he said, you know, young man, if you ever find yourself in cloud, climb. And I thought, oh, well, that's, why is he telling me this? <laughs> <laughs> I, and I asked, okay, uh, how come? And he said, because if you start climbing, eventually you're going to be above the highest obstacle around you and there's nothing you can run into. I thought, wow, that's nice. That's interesting. Good to know. Back to that situation. What do you think the first thing that came into my mind was? <laughs> yep, it was that conversation. And first thing I did, level the wings and start climbing immediately. I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't done that. Second thing I did, 125.2 on the right side of the radio, moved it over to the main side and made a call to Vancouver Terminal. Now, I don't know if it was denial or if it was just trying to remain calm, but it was a fairly calm initial call. Uh, nothing to get their attention, just the standard Vancouver Terminal uh, 172 uh, here by mission. Luckily, the controller got back to me right away. They asked me to squawk ident, which I did. And uh, I was on instruments at the time, starting to climb through about 2,500 feet. So I reported my altitude. And at that time, let them know that I was in cloud. And I believe I asked for a vector to a clearing or something to that effect. As if, as if you could see on his screen where the clearing was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a long pause. Maybe it wasn't that long, but it was pronounced. The reason there was that long pause, which I later learned, is that I was at 2,500 feet in an area where the minimum vectoring altitude was 7,000. And wow. any controller could tell you that that, uh, that is a moment that's going to make your heart skip. So the controller then asked me if the aircraft was equipped for IFR flight. And it was. So I said yes. 
the next question, are you IFR rated? And I was not. So I told them no. I know now that any controller is going to ask those two questions. So you better have them ready to go. You might as well just get that out of there so they can start helping you. Are you equipped for IFR flight and are you IFR rated? Because that uh, changes the situation dramatically. Uh, telling him I was not, he then gave me a heading to fly, which was 230 degrees, and asked me to climb to 5,000 feet. I started a left turn to heading 230, and I believe the altimeter was going uh, through uh, 3,000 feet at the time. And then all of a sudden, out of a gray windscreen, all I could see was a wall of trees. And instinctively, I pulled back on the control column and believe I turned to the left. Just It was very rapid. And as I did, I could feel the trees just smacking against the bottom of the airplane. And it was rapid. It was like a machine gun sound hitting the bottom of the airplane. And then all of a sudden, they all went back into the cloud and I was still flying. At that, my, at that point, my student decided it was time to say something. So she keyed the mic and screamed, we just hit trees. And the controller came back and said, is everything okay? And I, I, I responded, I think so, we're still flying. But as I did, I could start to smell burning wood. So branches from the trees we had gone through had entered the engine and were now smoking and on fire inside the engine cowling. And that's all I could smell. And I think with that, that's what triggered a panic in me. And all of a sudden, the instruments stopped making sense. I was doing okay flying on instruments until that point. Whereas now, the attitude indicator looked like it was banked to the left. The heading indicator looked like I was turning right. Everything looked backwards. And uh, the instruments looked like they were conflicting with each other. I don't believe they were. But I believe that's what stress, extreme stress will do to your cognitive capacity. Um, the, the, way I, the only way I could explain it is imagine from that point driving on the wrong side of a highway in the fog, knowing that at any second there's going to be a semi-trailer's lights right in your windshield. Because I thought at any second there's just another mountain there, then I'm going to hit it and I'm going to die. So I was probably about to lose control of the airplane, if I'm honest. I believe there's a, there's a pamphlet that Transport Canada has out. I think it's 178 seconds. I'm not sure how many exactly. Uh, they tell you from when a non-instrument rated pilot would enter cloud to when they lose control. I, I had to have had about 40 seconds left. But then the second thing that I believe saved my life, the controller told me, if you just climb another thousand feet, you'll be above the highest obstacle in your vicinity. And so at that point, the panic shifted to something. It shifted to something else, something I could focus on. And it was just climb that last thousand feet. Thinking of how to get out of this was too much. Thinking about the mountains was too much. But I could focus on that. And so I focused on the airplane. Uh, focused on the instruments and got that extra thousand feet. And right after I did, I kid you not, I punched out to the south 
overhead Abbotsford somewhere. And I remember looking at Abbotsford, Mount Sumas on the left, and I could actually see the Fraser Valley again. And it was beautiful. It was, it was, <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, we made it. And so at that point, I keyed the mic to the controller again and told him, thanks for his help. We're via fire. We'll see you later. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Stay with me. Stay with me. We're going to talk you back to Boundary Bay, which was wise. And so the controller actually uh, talked me all the way back through the Langley control zone. I was bugging him thinking I had to switch. I thought, oh, doesn't he know I'm about to enter the zone? I need to talk to Langley Tower. He's like, nope, we're good. We're talking to them for you. And it was good that he did. You know, he started asking me uh, questions, just making normal conversation, just uh, making sure I was calm. He did a really good job. And he talked me right into the downwind for uh, uh, at Boundary Bay before switching me to the tower for landing clearance. Now, I didn't know at the time what the condition of the nose wheel was. I thought, you know, did we damage that? Is that going to collapse on, on me when I land? Uh, honestly, I just wanted to be down so bad <laughs> at, that, at that point. So uh, we touched down and the nose wheel held up. And, uh, and yeah, maybe that's a good time to pause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you kept teaching after that, but you definitely, your career moved to air traffic control <laughs> in, a, in a little bit after that, didn't it? Did. Um, I took a I took a meaningful break. Let's put it that way. Um, I was I was in university at the time, so I took a, a couple months just to just to focus on school. But to be honest, uh, that that was such a life changing experience for me. I I didn't really focus on school either after that. Um, I did get back in the airplane a couple months later uh, and get back instructing. But in the meantime, during that break, it occurred to me that if it wasn't for that air traffic controller, I wouldn't be here. And that got me thinking, not so much the fear of getting in an airplane again. I, uh, you know, I made sure I got back in an airplane again and it didn't stop me from flying. But as a career, I thought, you know, if, if that guy was able to make such a difference on my life, wouldn't that be cool if I could do the same? And, uh, yeah, by that summer, I was off to Cornwall, the Nav Canada Training Institute, training for air traffic control. Nice. And your your student on on that day is now a commercial pilot for a major airline, so you didn't scare her too badly. She's a captain with uh with a major airline now, so she uh she went on a much better pilot than me. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, she's doing great, and we're still friends, believe it or not. Great. Did you guys ever debrief together? Just kind of shoot the shit about what happened literally i did not talk about it for two years hmm. and we kept in touch and I, I after i had actually checked out as an air traffic controller and uh, she was out on the east coast flying a navajo we met up in halifax maybe two years later and that was the first time we talked about it hmm. i think we we had a beer and just it just kind of came out and yeah, and then we, I think we got out everything we needed to, um, and that was that, and we moved on. Yeah. And you actually wrote a story for Flying Magazine. Um, is that kind of the first time you really kind of sat down and thought about the story and the lessons you learned? You know, I think when something like that happens, your subconscious works on it for a while. But it it occurred to me 
a couple of years later that, you know, th this was something I was really ashamed of, but I couldn't let that shame mask the lesson because there are, uh, there still are, and there were other people making those mistakes that I made. And yeah. so the motivation for sitting down and writing uh, for f that article for flying magazine was that if I lived and I was fortunate enough to live through that experience, I owe it to the next person to pass that story on so that they might not make the same mistake. And uh, you recommended a book during your presentation about called thinking in bets by Annie Duke and I actually picked it up right after I started reading it. And yeah. uh, I'm not done yet, but it's, uh, it's already got me thinking differently about decision-making as it pertains to flying. The, the subheading is making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. And that's pretty much aviation in a nutshell, I think. That's absolutely aviation. That's everyday pilots and controllers go to work. You're, you're making decisions that, uh, and then reevaluating them. I think the most important thing I got from that book was the concept of what she calls resulting, where we look at the result of a decision and decide if it was a good decision or not. But really that's not the way you go about making good decisions you need to look over a thousand of those potential decisions before you evaluate your decision making process yeah there's actually a meme going around right now about coronavirus that i was like oh that's actually what she was talking about and it says like if i gave you 100 smarties and three of them are going to kill you are you going to have even one of them and yeah. it's like yeah you might get 97 good ones but the 98th one's going to kill you yeah i'm not eating the smarties yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. Well, thanks for telling us that story. It's uh, my, my pleasure. Yeah. And it is March 23rd, 2020. I'm, I'm trying to avoid coronavirus discussions on the podcast, but uh, I am interested to hear how things are going as an air traffic controller in that world right now. Well, it's interesting uh, because of uh, the self-isolation uh, protocols and uh, the quarantine issues around travel, uh, I have not been back to work since the uh, since the outbreak here. So, yeah, it, it's a massive change we're all in the midst of right now, uh, pilots and controllers. And I think my earlier slip to 2001 alludes to that. It really feels like 2001 all over again in terms right. of the impact to aviation. Yeah, absolutely. And it might last longer even, because at, well, at least that was a single event. It's not an ongoing thing. That's right. This is unfolding, unfolding over time. Um, whereas, you know, back in September 11th, though, I mean, people were still wondering when that next attack might happen. So I think the fear still, even though we look back in history and see it as one event, it still felt long at the time. Uh, right. It'd be interesting how we look back at this 20 years on from it, but certainly yeah. we're having a similar impact and I have no doubt we're going to come back leaner and meaner uh, like we have before as an industry. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's certainly a wake up call for all of us. Yeah. Cool. Uh, where can people find you online? You know, you have a, you have a good blog and well, well I, I have a website uh, where, where I write on aviation concepts. It's jamesmarasa.com and on Twitter at James Marasa. I like to post stuff, uh, have a little more free time on my hands, so hopefully I can, I can put out a bit more content in the coming weeks. Yeah, I think that's all of our plan at the moment. It's like, all right, yeah. free time, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, it's creative time. If we can, we can uh, look past the, past the the current events and and use it. it could be could be something uh, valuable in the end. Hopefully.
Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks very much, Warwick. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to James for sharing that story. And thanks to you for listening. You can find show notes and links at flyingbc.com and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Flying British Columbia. I've also got a couple videos going up on YouTube in the next week or so, so please subscribe there. YouTube.com slash FlyingBC. And if you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, my suggestions this week are Pilot to Pilot Podcast and the Stuck Mike Avcast. If you have any feedback or questions or people you think I should interview, please get in touch. Stay healthy, and I'll see you again soon in the skies over BC. Flying BC is a production of Formula Photographic.